this um, next session, session four, um, I'm James Hickford from the Public Policy Group, uh, and I'm going to be chairing this session, which I think should lead very nicely on from the last session that we've just done. This is called Information and Citizen Focused Innovation. So we've got three speakers, so again, we're going to work away quite quickly through the, um, through the presenters and leave um, hopefully a, a half an hour for discussion at the end. So I'm going to straight away hand over to William Heath. Thank you, Jane. And can I say a bit of feedback there? Can I just say what a pleasure it is to follow my two most admired suppliers to public services, DXW and Think Public. So we've got a big act to follow there, I think. And I'm also glad that Harry raised an element of controversy um, about the model of uh, online public services, because I'm going to be way more controversial. My starting point is that I think there's a fundamental structural injustice in the online world today. It's a uh, structural wrong setting which makes Google and Facebook and Experian and Axiom and uh, members of the Nectar Consortium very rich. It makes public services very inefficient. It makes them expensive to deliver. And it makes them hatefully time-consuming, as we saw in Ivo's videos, which I think is exactly the right way to approach a subject of this sort. And it's exactly right to say... When we're talking about moving Social Security online, we're talking, as Ivo said, about a huge number of highly personal, highly emotional experiences. I think this fundamental structural injustice is a large contributor to what makes government IT projects so um, expensive and uh, so many failures. And I think it's deeply disempowering and depressing for individuals of every profile that we've looked at. And Veronica, who's with us today, uh, did deep ethnographic research about a number of different profiles of individual, and regardless of you know, age or, or where they were coming from, they were somewhere between depressed and in denial about what happens to their personal data online. Somebody put it to me recently that Web 2.0 is a trust fail. The fact at the heart of this is that people don't have the infrastructure and the tools and techniques that they need to manage their personal data and to acquire and demonstrate trust in online relationships. And the fallacy that we're all living and people's careers and businesses are wholly invested in it, so it's not questioned. The fallacy is that this is entirely right and normal. Now, I'm uh, an entrepreneur. Among other things, I'm the founder of Midex Community Interest Company, which is a social enterprise which, along with other organisations, is trying to rectify this problem. Uh, a community interest company means that we have to serve a named community, people who use personal data online. We have a community purpose, which is to help individuals realise the value of their personal data. We're asset-locked. We can't be sold on the next dot-com sort of wave to, to PayPal or, or, or whoever. Um, we are rooted in the Young Foundation, where we're one of part of their Launchpad programme. And Midex Kick is a, a platform to make possible something which in the UK has been talked about for a decade or so as buyer-centric commerce or customer-managed relationships. Uh, there's a lot of theoretical uh, uh, writing and work on it. There's been a buyer-centric commerce forum. In America, they use the term vendor relationship management or VRM, which is intended to invoke deliberately the counterpart to CRM. Organizations have CRM systems to keep data on individuals, and the premise is that individuals need an equal level of sophistication on their side to manage their relationships 
with suppliers. I think Midex is a world leader in this in the sense that you know, the Wright brothers were the first to fly. I think if you wanted scheduled flights to take your family on holiday, you would wait a little bit before, um, before you know, hopping on the right flyer. But all aspects of this different way of working are now proven, so a number of us are rapidly moving towards live service. So the problem we're dealing with is a loss of individual control over how we uh, live our lives online. It's a problem. It can be seen as a problem of human rights, a problem of efficiency. Of, 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 I think it's perhaps best described as a problem of data logistics. And as we all know, when our logistics are completely awry, it's expensive and painful for everyone involved. Now, I'm going to step through... Um, I think I'll start at the beginning, probably, of the presentation, for me. Um, so... Let's start at the beginning, and then we'll go through. Well, one more... Thank you. So this is, you know, with apologies to anyone who uh, I've shared this with before, a wholly non-technical and top-level introduction to the idea of vendor relationship management or buyer-centric commerce. Can we go back to the beginning again? It's just rolling. It's just a PDF. It shouldn't have any metadata at all. So freeze frame. Cool. Run it. This is, this is the overintelligence of PowerPoint. I feel disempowered. I'll try and talk to the pictures because I think it's a more helpful way of sort of um, uh, freezing it in what what should we do here just just leave it off like that because then surely you should be able to scroll through at the top no? that's fine we can see that so if we can go back to the first one number one there we are three more that's it. Two more, one more, good. There we are. Okay, so the world as it is at the moment, you've got organisations which you know could be the DWP or it could be a phone company or a bank or anybody, who, Amazon, anyone who holds lots of customer data, they've been sold the idea that if they know everything about their customers, they can downsell, outsource, uh, do competitive marketing, push people into more profitable lines of work, whatever it is. They want all the information on their side so that they're in charge of the relationship. But the reality is. The data is of very poor quality. They don't know how much reduplication, how many omissions they've got. The more they gather from different sources, the bigger the problem gets. And the harder they push this model, the more people opt out and say, no, I don't want to hear from you. I don't care what it's about. Just stop spamming me. I don't want to hear from you ever again, whether you're the bank or the phone company, whether it's the electoral roll, whether it's marketing, uh, mailing, or preference services. So this is a sort of fail in terms of investment, return on investment, and erosion of trust in the relationship with the customer or resident or, or taxpayer. And then from the individual's point of view, we have to separately manage our relationship with every different organization we deal with. We have to ring a different phone number or fill out a different web form. It's just immensely time-consuming. I thought it was Consumer Focus that did some research saying it takes the average householder one and a half weeks per year just to deal with customer services, but I've never managed to track it down. So if there's someone from Consumer Focus here, if you know, please tell me. But what I would say is, for the individual, it's, it's not a hugely expensive thing. It's just immensely time-consuming and a major pain. Next slide, please. Right. So the idea of VRM is that you give the individual a dashboard which lets them access, manage, control, delete, edit their personal data. So you have your counterpart of the CRM record under your control. You have two extra capabilities. The first is you can go to external authorities and gain a claim proof. You could get a proof, for example, that you have a driver's license, a proof of a verified name and address, or proof perhaps that you're creditworthy. 
And you're then able to take that whole package of your personal data, your circumstances, your preferences, and external proof where necessary of the claims that you're making, and you can share that with organizations you actually want to have a relationship with. You can either say, I would like to do a transaction, like buy a car. Here's the details that are needed to complete my part of that. Or you can say, I have an ongoing relationship. I want a TV license every year. I use Vodafone. I use Amazon. Whenever you need data from me, come and get it because you're authorized. Until you do something stupid, and then I'm going to stop authorizing you, and you can't get it anymore. So that's the basis of uh, vendor relationship management. You introduce the individuals and structured part into the thing, and then, next slide, the world looks exactly the same. Organizations still have their large databases. They're still doing the fulfillment and devising the rules and, and policies by which services are provided. But the individual's able to clean up the record and to fill, up, yeah, fill in the gaps and to explain their circumstances. And from the individual's point of view, you've got a, a tell-them-once engine, which efficiently allows you to share the same data which you're sharing over and over again with different people, but under your control, so you're in charge. Now, that's the basic two-pronged model, which we just did a live community prototype of, uh, showing real individuals, real data, external verification from Experian, and Brent Council, who went through the process of seeing how this fitted in with data protection and their security uh, obligations and so forth. If we do the next slide, please. Um, what we see as necessary for a live service, from this, this is where it's sort of like Harry's vision, but more radical. You need to kit the individual out. We can just check the focus a little bit. Maybe. The individual just wants convenience. They want to get stuff done, and they need to be able, to be able to show trust, and they need utility. They need a personal data service with a dashboard. The, the relying parties, the big organizations doing things, just need to plug into an ecosystem where they can connect with their residents, their customers, their users, get the information they want in a structured exchange. It's nice if people shovel some trust into the process. In, in cabinet office speak, this would be ID providers in the ID assurance policy. But, but in fact, it's proof of any sort of attribute, name, address, creditworthiness, uh, whatever. Uh, it interacts rather pleasingly with the open data or public data agenda in that if you've got a personal data store, you're able to see only the open data that is pertinent to your address or, or, or circumstances or condition or preferences. But this is the crucial part, which is if individuals can share their structured and verified data under their control through a personal data ecosystem, you can produce a wonderful array of new services in the form of apps that serve the individual directly. So this, you know, the T-shirt, this could be, let me help you manage your finances. Let me help you manage your rare medical condition. Let me help you prepare an application for universal credit. Let me help you get your residence parking permit. And these can be done by existing large companies, by emerging businesses, and MyDex has a number of relationships with entrepreneurs who want to provide services direct to individuals. But the problem is the trust one. A lot of companies have got a, a, a premise which says, just trust me with your personal data and I can do something wonderful. And the individual is saying, well, yeah, right. You know, that's what Facebook said. That's what Google said. I won't get fooled again. So a trusted personal data ecosystem makes it viable and possible to produce these new apps that sit on the side of the user. How am I doing for time, Jane? Ten minutes. Ten. So next slide, please. Um, this is, if you want a slightly more sort of formalized or, 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 or PowerPointy representation of the same ecosystem. So you've got an individual connecting through a smartphone or other device. The other players in there. Now, um, I am not an expert in social security, but I'll try to, to sketch out how this infrastructure might work in that kind of environment. If, next slide, please. We, the main points that play are, if you wanted to do online social security in this user-driven way, empowering the individual as much as you possibly can, 
the thing you do, first of all, is accept philosophically, despite your generation of investment in a totally organization-centric view of the world, accept that actually the individual is a legitimate point of integration for their lives. And if they're managing their lives online, every different aspect of it comes together under their control. As promised in the Conservative and Labour manifestos, and the Lib Dems believed it, even though they didn't write it, restore control of a personal data to the individual. You can see moves towards this with Google data liberation and so on, but although Google will give you a copy of your data, they're not yet talking about giving you real control because, uh, guess what, they still want to monetize it. Let individuals acquire and demonstrate trust online. It's much better if you're doing social security to allow 85 or 90% of people to prove that you don't have to worry about them rather than treat everyone as a suspect and give everyone the same amount of cross-checking. Let's get hundreds of organizations to share their details about this individual to see if they're fibbing or not. You support it with encryption and a payments mechanism so it can flow through the ecosystem. This allows the evolution of apps, and it could be consumer-focused, it could be third-sector organizations, it could be the Citizens Advice Bureau, it could be the DWP, it could be some young geek who shows up at a young rewired state to could write an application to provide a fully completed and verified form for the service that you want. There needs to be a tweak at the departmental end, and this is the bit where Harry said, add APIs, and I was sitting <coughs> there, and Patrick said, hey, Harry, you're a mad libertarian, you know, nutcase. Um, I think we must understand exactly what Harry means by putting an API onto the big tax and welfare systems, because that's the crucial difference. It's, it's, it, it couldn't, it's chalk and cheese compared to developing a massive public sector IT application from scratch. And... Uh, Simon, who's my colleague, uh, knows exactly what it's like because he was on the inside when they did that at Brent Council and he prepared these and can speak more about it for those questions. But the personal data ecosystem of this sort, it's, this is the precondition. If you want participative public services, if you want people in control of their own case, of their own health, of their own education, you must give them the data. They can't achieve the aims of the health white paper, the education white paper, unless individuals have control over their data, and are able to acquire and demonstrate proof. And the cost base for developing flexible new applications to meet new needs or different language groups or different uh, uh, fashions or different platforms, it's just completely the opposite end of the spectrum from, from getting a systems integration designed from scratch, a huge uh, monolithic central system. But as you can see from the rapid evolution of apps for tablets and mobile phones. Final slide, and then I'll finish. So what... What we would see as the process with the previous, uh, you know, I'm not an expert in this stuff, is for Social Security, an individual who wants to get that or a trusted third party uh, under power of attorney or whatever it is, gains control of a personal data store. I'm sorry these are doubled up because of a, a PowerPoint open office fail, but they authenticate the details that are necessary to authenticate. And this can include connecting to your employer, to your bank to prove your details, to your GP if it's about disability and this sort of thing. This is entirely in keeping with the biz my data policy of giving the record back to the customer. They then provide that information encrypted with a digital signature so it's in the personal data service. The added application provides that authenticated uh, assessment to the DWP which can then do the processing. So DWP doesn't have to worry so much about the quality of the data but they do worry about their rules and the application of them. And then you get the assessment results back in the PDS. There's further benefits then. I mean, if you're one of these people who uh, is, is on the wrong utility tariff, you're entitled to the best possible tariff because you're on benefits, 
how does DWP tell the utility company you're on benefits? They can't because of data protection. So you go to the DWP, you get a piece of paper saying you are on benefits, you take it to the electricity company. That's how it works nowadays. It's a horrible, inefficient process. In this process, the DWP can give the individual an encrypted token which says this is sufficient proof that you are on benefits and you're entitled to the lowest possible tariff. You take it to the electricity company. They don't like it. They don't want to give everyone the lowest tariff, but it's the law and they've got to do it. I think I'll stop there because of time. But uh, doing questions at the end. Yeah, good. That's great. Thank you. straight over to Theresa Pershard from Citizen Advice. Okay. Right, thank you. I have some slides too. The bottom right one. And hopefully they, they will stay in one place <laughs> as we go through. So can I use this to change it? Yeah. Okay. So moving Social Security online. Well, I I've, I've only came in about um, Calls for us too. So I wasn't sure I was in a sort of right place for the CAB, but let's see. Um, I'm going to talk about sort of who we are and what we do, um, our work in the social security area, including our engagement with some on online services. Although we're not we're, we're not as whizzy as um, you lot, and uh, what we think about moving social security online, how it should be approached, and how we're approaching um, some of these issues, we can perhaps touch on in conversation. Um, I guess I'm here to um, provide a bit of the insight from the front line. Um, and um, part of that front line uh, is about to go on strike tomorrow. And I was very pleased to get my uh, stakeholder email uh, from lovely Roger Pugh, who's been working for DWP, DHSS, for all of his life, I think, uh, during which time he told me all the payments would still go out automatically. That was, that was all under control. Some offices were closed, and do you know what? He absolutely failed to mention any web services that would still be available tomorrow, <laughs> not even a phone number at the end of it. Uh, so I know where Roger, Roger's coming from. He, he realises there are people out there who need money urgently or who might need to see somebody urgently, and, and he sort of completely hasn't thought the web is of any benefit in the event of a strike. And actually, you know what? He might be right. Um, who we are. Uh, we're a charity uh, made up of uh, hundreds of other charities who help people resolve a whole range of different problems, uh, legal and money problems, consumer um, problems. We do that by providing information and individual advice and problem solving and by influencing policy makers. Um, just to give you a sense of the scale, all of the local CABs um, are independent charities and they're members of my organisation in England and Wales. We have 39 member bureaus. It's like if you were Barclays and all your branches were independent and, uh, and they could tell you what to do sometimes at an AGM. That, would, that, that strikes terror into a Barclays chief exec when we tell them that. Uh, 20,000 volunteers in our service and 5,000 people who are paid, either as advisors, managers, or working for citizens' advice. Um, most of those volunteers are advisors working with the public. A huge level of public awareness, 95% of the public have heard of us, and more than half of the public have had some kind of encounter with us at some point in their lives, either to use us or work for us, or they know someone who has. So um, uh, maybe we should take over the government one day. Um, 7.1 million new problems last year. Uh, through the bureaus, that's the bureaus giving that advice, to 2 million people. So people with multiple problems, um, often, welfare and beyond. 
because that's how people people don't live in a welfare life, um, thankfully, all of their time. Uh, they have other issues they need to deal with. And uh, our uh, advice work uh, volumes increased by about 18% during the recession, hasn't gone down since, and um, we'd expect it to go up going forward. Uh, we deliver um, services on multiple channels, face-to-face, -face, extremely well-known in local communities. Yes, we know how to use telephones too, um, uh, in community venues, um, and uh, by email and on the web. And we have 9.4 million users of our website advice guide, deeply forgettable name, uh, last year. Um, and um, so that's really developed over the last few years. Three and a half thousand locations that you can see a CAB advisor, often a volunteer, in to, to get advice. We also de uh, deliver um, lots of outreach services with other partners, financial education in local communities, um, and as well as those national services. And at, at the top of all of that, campaigning, taking evidence from our advice work and telling it to government. Um, our clients, well... Um, more, slightly more women than men, um, um, more single than, than couples, but we have lots of couples, 41% are couples, 36% uh, with dependent children, mainly working age, 78%, 23% of all our clients, though, are disabled or have long-term health problems, and another 10% have long-term health problems. Only 22% are involved with home ownership, 32% um, are unemployed and 12% are retired. I think what, we're, what the people we work with have more active transaction. It's a time of their lives when they have more active transactions, but they may not have very much money. Our debt clients uh, have half the average income. Um, they still owe a phenomenal amount. And throughout our, our client base, so there's a predominance of people with disabilities, long-term health problems, mental health problems, perhaps low skills, and certainly limited capacity, particularly when dealing with bureaucracy. In terms of social security advice, 2.1 million ben benefits and tax credits problems. We are the single largest provider of free independent advice outside of government on, on benefits. Um, plus debts, unemployment, housing, many other issues, relationship breakdown, immigration asylum, health, consumer problems, utility issues. So we know about those social tariffs as well. And in terms of social security, it's quite a distribution of different work that we're doing. Lots on housing benefit and council tax benefit. Uh, that's coming at our clients from local councils and indeed is highly variable, the, the levels of benefit in different areas. Uh, DLA, uh, all aspects of, so disability benefits, working in child tax credit. So quite a spread of, of advice work as well as job seekers allowance. Um, in terms of our involvement with um, developing online welfare services, well, uh, we have been involved with one or two um, failed um, uh, benefits intermediary projects uh, set up by the last government, um, and we might be involved with some more. Um, <laughs> when, a, when a senior official from government comes and talks to us about turning us into trusted intermediaries as part of a computer transformation project, they don't realise we've been around this loop several times before. Um, uh, we've uh, had interaction with the Tell Us Once project um, and the benefits calculator that's on DirectGov, although I used it last night, I think it could be an awful lot better. I, I put in for my granny who was 70, I found out how much pension credit I was missing out, but I didn't get anything else out of the system than that. It, can, it only does most basic stuff. 
Um, uh, we got very involved with Turn to Us, who've produced an online uh, benefits calculator, which is also linked to finding charities that can top up benefits. That's happening increasingly. And some of our advisors tested that out before it went on the road. So we see that as a voluntary sector uh, innovation, which has helped to improve benefit take-up and involved intermediaries in design from day, day one. Uh, we provide a website, National Homelessness Advisory Service, with shelter uh, aimed at the voluntary housing advice sector. And um, we're constantly involved with talking with the HMRC about uh, interaction with their system. And we've got more, more to come with them. Um, what are our views about moving Social Security online? Well, I think we realise the opportunities here. Um, uh, there are huge opportunities to make things better, faster, simpler, cut down on delay in handling administrative issues. Um, uh, there's also a huge opportunity about improving take-up. £18 billion worth of unclaimed means-tested benefits, sort of sitting not in a jam jar, but potentially on the government's books, if anybody was able to claim it. So we'd really like one of those systems which told people, come on, uh, claim that tax credit you're entitled to, do it now. Um, um, I'm not sure the government really wants to make, make that happen, given the scale of unclaimed benefit that's, that's sitting there. But that, should, that motivates us to want to help people to claim their benefits. But we're extremely nervous and anxious as well on behalf of the clients and service users and also our intermediaries about a move which is really about cost shunting uh, and has been over the past few years about cost shunting from face-to-face -face high cost delivery by government uh, to the lowest you know, penny a penny a pop uh, operations uh, which don't really address the needs of the individuals. And the people who are least likely to use the internet at the moment might be those who are most likely to need social security services or welfare services in a number of areas and have that brought together for them. Nearly half of those who've never been online are disabled, about 4.2 million people. Um, and there appears to be no data about language barriers. Some of our involved with UK online projects found that we could get people online but there was a huge issue around translation um, to enable people to use effectively. And then ongoing support. Um, uh, where people, it's not a one-touch transaction, it's not just buy that book on Amazon and it turns up pronto. It's an interaction that goes on over a long period of time. Um, and so the online is not, a, is not a single channel if it's there. It actually requires a, a range of support services around it. Now I would say that, wouldn't I, because I come from a big face-to-face -face, uh, support service provider. But it's coming from the people we work with. So how do we think online service development should be approached? Well, actually, start with uh, the customer. Build it for the customer, not for the provider. Um, that should work across the public and private services. And we hear a lot of that being said, but actually, that's not often where things start. They start with cost saving, and indeed, your conference brochure talks about you know, it's a cost-driven, cost-driven, rather than an equality or a take-up driven initiative um, to, to actually get more benefits to people or to, to really improve the experience for the customer. Um, so that means knowing uh, what people need, um, uh, how things work, building from the bottom and, and addressing those. Um, service provision um, needs to be founded on consultation and engagement. If you are going to shunt a lot of things online and withdraw some face-to-face -face services, who's going to pick up the face-to-face? for the people who will need that um, in order to operate the system and have access to their rights, uh, even just to maintain uh, their, their, their present 
uh, um, level of benefit or level of operation. Um, how do you design it for everyone? Uh, the welfare system, as, as I've shown from our statistics, we give advice to, on welfare for people who are disabled and people who are job seeking. Um, uh, people with mental health problems, people who don't have mental health problems, people who've been in and out of the work, workforce for, um, with different experiences, people with children, people without children, people who are, are of retirement age, people who aren't. So, um, it, design for all and all, all needs, involve key intermediaries, um, uh, and um, uh, have some good accessibility standards. And um, make sure you've got, it's not about shunting from one channel to another, but opening up some channels whilst keeping others. And that's something that we're doing in our service as well. Some of our better practice examples I asked for our public information team for. Um, I, I'm not sure this is an area where there is leading edge, really, um, uh, because I'm not sure about the HMRC's <laughs> online self-assessment tax filing system. It's locked me out once because I already exist on the system, it tells me. That NI number already exists, so I think I know there are duplicate NI numbers. Um, but, um, you know, we thought, well, um, that, that's, that's progressed, and some of their communications have also um, progressed. But HMRC has developed a customer strategy of segmentation, which is, is interesting and other departments can learn from. Online census form, um, uh, if you'd already answered the question, which meant that the following ones didn't apply, those didn't appear. And that's something the benefits checker uh, on DirectGov could do, could do with having a bit more sort of intelligence uh, within the system. Uh, Bristol City Council uh, developed some uh, e-democracy services, which we've noticed, and the Disabled Living Foundation website, uh, which achieved a national e-wellbeing award. So we, we think, go and have a look at some good examples. Perhaps we'll talk about some of the bad in a moment. And I think I'll leave it there. But um, we are currently working with Consumer Focus on a project not far removed from the My Data project. It's part of the government's consumer empowerment strategy where we're being asked to come up with a, um, very, a short, um, concise list of proposals for change um, in transactions and service delivery across private and public sectors, uh, which would empower the most vulnerable people in our society as consumers of public and private services. And I'd be very surprised if some things to do with welfare service delivery were not on the list. And we'll be reporting next January. Fingers crossed. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, hi, those of you who've uh, got good eyesight will spot that I'm not Helen Milner, um, for which I apologise, and I'm always apologising. Um, Teresa didn't mention, actually, one of the things that um, I was talking to a friend of mine last night about uh, CAB, and uh, it turns out on the note of translation that when DWP publishes a new set of guidance for its staff on how the system works, they give it to CAB, CAB translates it into English, and actually, that's the version that most frontline staff use. So, there you go. Um, Kevin McLean, UK Online Centres. I've been there about a year, um, and it's a great job. Before that, I was 25 years in the civil service. And my first job in the civil service was in Slough B Unemployment Benefit Office as a clerical assistant. Uh, not even Slough A, mind you, but Slough B. <laughs> so, um, I've got some pretty direct experience of working in a social security system directly with clients and uh, I can tell you there were one or two clients in those days for whom 
an online transaction would have been infinitely better for both of us. Um, nevertheless, UK Online Centres, very briefly, what are we? We're a network of 4,000, not 390, but 4,000 independent organisations, mostly in the voluntary community sector, who help people get online for the very first time. Imagine someone who's never held a mouse before, never switched on a computer before. That's, that's our client group. Um, we're just about to uh, identify our 500,000th um, new person online since the 1st of April last year. Um, so we're very pleased about that. Uh, so we're a bulk operation. We work very closely with Martha Lane Fox and Race Online. In some ways, we're the kind of provisional wing of Race Online, really. Um, we kind of uh, are out there quietly getting things done, uh, which, is, which is great. Um, and I'm, I looked at these slides this morning and I thought I could really, really, really depress you because what I'm mostly going to talk about is that element of our client group or customer group um, who aren't online yet. And uh, I thought, well, if I, if I just show you these slides and describe this client group through research, you're all going to walk away thinking this whole moving stuff online thing is completely impossible. Um, and that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that I'm an optimist, that doing good online services is absolutely the right thing to do, um, that we do know how to get people online and help them get online for the first time and sustainably, um, and actually, I do think that a really, really excellent online service uh, around social security would be a huge advance. Um, but I also agree with something Harry said earlier, which is that actually there will always be a hardcore of people for whom multiple needs will never be addressed wholly online. And that would be to try and design a system that would do all of that would be, make it a wholly unwieldy system and completely impossible to operate, design, build, afford etc. I'm also an optimist on money, by the way. I do think the absence of cash drives innovation. Um, so, does this work? Next slide. Right. Um, piece of research from Martha. Uh, I think that number is probably an underestimate. Um, £900 million a year if people actually did government transactions online. I think it's probably higher than that. But uh, I think that seemed like a reasonable number to claim. Um, but some of you have seen some of these bits of information before. Um, the top line represents those of us who are online every day, and in the case of a lot of people in this room, an hour is too long, isn't it? Um, the bottom line represents those people who have never been online at all, never ever. And you can see that gap is widening. So who are we talking about when we talk about digital ex exclusion? Nearly 9 million people, 17.5% of the population, about half of whom are likely to be people who will want to interact in some way with the social security system. Uh, on the other hand, 40 million of us use the, 41 million of us use the internet every day. Um, there is a, a, a difference in, in age, gender, Hang on. Well, anyway, there's a difference between age, gender, and where you live. That affects, affects whether you're likely to be online or not. Um, London South East, most likely to be online. More men than women. Uh, younger people rather than older people. This is, this is the profile of age. This, this is people who have ever used the internet. Youngest to oldest, and you'll see there's quite a curve there. 
Uh, all of these things are available after, so you don't need to worry about the numbers. I'm just trying to give you a whiz through of the evidence. Um, so who doesn't use the inter internet? More women than men. Um, older people, that gender difference still splits. Um, preponderance of people with disabilities not using the internet. Uh, and people in Northern Ireland and the northeast of England are least, least likely to be online. Um, socioeconomic group, not surprisingly, is, is uh, directly relevant. So if you're in social groups, D&E, you're much less likely to be online than if you uh, aren't in those social groups. So the major factors of whether you're likely to be online or not are age, socioeconomic group, disability and gender. Mm. Well, there you are. Um, I think if you, add, if you substituted this presentation for any other aspect of um, social exclusion, you'd probably come up with many of the same factors, wouldn't you? So why don't people use the internet? Um, not interested in it costs too much are the two, are two biggies. Um, I actually think that the cost too much is directly relevant to the first one, because if you thought it was worth getting online in the first place, you might think it was affordable. Um, so I actually think a lot of it is, why should I? What's in it for me? Um, these are the reasons that people say that they are online. Um, social contact, passing the time, fun, relaxing, sports, news, learning sing, things and the news. Um, missing from those lists are, of course, gambling and pornography. Um, but you will also find that nowhere on this list is, I want to use a government service. <laughs> um, interesting conflict with something that David was saying earlier about the trend in... Um, in using mobile devices. Um, the Ofcom research suggests that only 2% of adults currently use uh, a mobile device, uh, a, an alternative to a PC or laptop, as their only means of getting online. So that's an interesting one. So apps developers, yes, but probably a minority sport right now. Not to say it's not going to change. If you got them online, in the if you actually got people online, that isn't the total answer. Not surprisingly either. So people are still more likely to want to interact or interact with their council face-to-face uh, -face or on the telephone than they are online, even if they are online. Um, and only 54% of adults have ever used an online government service. And I checked what they meant by an online government service, and that's absolutely anything. Sent an email, visited a website, only half of people have ever done that. So a bit of a way to go. Um, lots of people don't realise they can save money by being online. I think your client group probably gets advised that they can. Um, and to William's point, about half of internet users have some concerns, which is a lovely phrase, about personal information online, um, which is, again, interesting. Um, but the good news, well, a number of things about that. One is that you'll see from all of that that it's not a straightforward picture. There are all sorts of reasons why people aren't online. Um, there are all sorts of different kinds of people who aren't online. So a one-size-fits-all solution, there isn't a magic bullet answer. Um, the good news is, though, we do know what most of the answers are, and we are already doing some of those things. So there's some really good examples. Um, this is a bit of a plug for us. Got to do it, haven't you? Um, we have 4,000 centres. We are focused on areas of social deprivation. Um, we aren't like job centres, big branded offices. We are community organisations who, who are where you live. Um, you've probably been to a UK online centre and not realised it was, actually. Um, schools, sure start centres, shops, pubs, 
Um, we've got some really good um, work going on with Weatherspoons, actually, at the moment. Um, <coughs> homeless shelters, libraries, lots of libraries um, do a lot of good stuff. Um, we can add uh, Mecca bingo halls and Asda supermarkets to that list very shortly. Um, and that, I think, is a, is a good representation of the, of the work that we do. Another one? Um, one thing I wanted to draw out was we ran a, sh a short campaign with Job Centre Plus earlier this year in January, February. Um, and that resulted in half of our centres, so 2,000 centres, having a direct relationship with their local job centre. Um, a whole bunch of referrals, so 46,000 direct referrals from a job centre to a UK online centre in those couple of months. Um, and uh, I just think that very simple thing shows that actually there are answers to these questions. We get people online for about 50 quid a head. If someone gets online and does a single government transaction, you've probably covered our costs. If they go online and they do half a dozen government transactions, everyone's quids in. Uh, and they're probably getting a better service too. So it's a message of hope here. Um, so my conclusion to all of this is it must be right to move Social Security online and to provide a better service by doing so. Um, there is a significant challenge here. Um, and there's a fur further challenge once you've got people online in getting them to, uh, somebody called it stickability, stick with using um, government online. And it won't happen by accident. Um, but the good news is that if we plan for it, work at it, the answers are there, the examples are there to build on. Um, and we can crack this. And I think as well, um, it's not just UK online centres who get people online. There are lots of other charitable organisations and community organisations, Digital Unite, Citizens Online. Lots of people are in this field. Uh, and the BBC and others. And interestingly, the absence of cash has made us collaborate more as well over the last year or so, which is, again, really helpful. So don't be down disheartened by the fact that there aren't people online yet. Do plan on, to act about, uh, on it, though, and not just assume that because there is race online and UK online centres and others, it will happen by magic. It won't. We need to work together to make sure it happens for as many people as possible. And for those people who can't and won't ever get online, we need to make sure there is a service in place that will address their needs. Gina Lockland, direct off again. Um, it's for William about um, my decks. Sorry, I'm just looking at my notes. I did write it down whenever you were talking. Um, for the authentication bit of my decks, so I'm, I set up my my decks account and I get authenticated. Who does the authentication? How do they do it? And is there a back-end infrastructure set up to allow that to happen? Can we, sorry, yeah, can sure. we just take yeah. a few and then yeah. we can come back? Has anyone else got something they'd like to ask? No? Okay. <laughs> I think it's a crucial question. I think we've moved from a stage where 
we proposed the National ID Scheme here, which was to be the one gold standard, and it was all about the registration process. Then James Crosby said, the banks will do this. Now we've got a coalition policy on ID assurance, which seems to assume that an individual can get an external token from any one of a range of accredited identity providers and use that to get a public service. The MIDEX model is different. MIDEX says the individual has sufficient infrastructure to acquire a generic proof of claim from anyone. So, in the live community prototype that we shared with Brent Council, that was experienced. Somebody would enter their personal name, address, contact details, they would verify that against an, adjust, uh, an amended Experian application, which was originally intended to say if you're allowed to do gambling, and then they would get a token from Experian saying, yes, we verified this address, and could then present it to the council. But the MIDEX model is that if anybody is offering such tokens, you can use and deploy them, and there'll be a competition in terms of utility, what you can get done with them, the technology, the process, and the cost. So if, for example, people can go to post offices up and down the country and take paper credentials, driving licenses, bank statements, swimming certificate, and the post office says, yes, the post office clerk has seen what looks to us to be an authentic paper credential of that sort, we're now providing a digital version of it to the individual, then if the individual wants to apply for a job in Australia which needs a swimming certificate, you've then got it. So we're proposing a generic platform that allows individuals to acquire proof not just of identity, but of any claim you might want to make. Creditworthiness. The fact you're over 18. Entitlement to work. Name. Address. I think we've got really hung up on identity. Identity discussions have been quite heated, a little bit toxic, you know, for some years. I've got no desire to go through years more, you know, identity debates. We're simply saying that individuals need to be able to acquire and redeploy generic external proofs of claims. Does that answer the question? Not really. No. <laughs> what we're saying is the, the individual can take a proof of claim from any organisation willing to offer it. So if, perhaps one day in 2500, DVLA will start saying, we'll give you an electronic proof that you own your car or that you have a driving licence, well, in that case, the individual, a MIDEX-enabled individual, can use that token. In reality... Because of the MyData policy run by Biz, which is about organizations giving the customer record back to the individual phone companies, banks, uh, credit card companies, and so forth, that kind of digital proof of relationship is going to be flowing from organizations to individuals anyway. And that's just the online equivalent of what we used to do 10, 20 years ago if you wanted to open a new you know, club account, whatever it is. You'd go in with a couple of pieces of paper which say, I've got a bank account. I pay a phone bill, that probably means I have an address, it probably means I'm credit worthy. That's what we did in the paper world. So we're simply saying you should be able to do that in the online world. So, thank you. I suppose what I was thinking when I asked the question, I thought we should have clarified was at the moment, how do you authenticate somebody's address? How do you prove that they lived? Yeah. So, at the moment, I'll bring my driver's license in. So, is your, maybe I'm not quite getting what you're saying, but um, at the moment, if you're going to do that online, DVLA would pull that information and you can't have access to their database because it's I think you're right to feel a sense of unease because what we're proposing is profoundly radical. Much more radical. It's not than, a sense of unease. But, not unease. But, but, no. The point is, DVLA, DVLA don't know the first thing about addresses, with respect. I mean, by law, their database is 100% correct because by law you fill it in. 
In reality, it's very, very poor indeed. So if you're relying on an agency in Wales, which is about drivers and licenses, to prove your address, it's not really fit for purpose, in all honesty. The first person who knows you've got a new address is your solicitor if you do a lease or a purchase. The first trusted entity that could bind you to a new address is your solicitor. Pretty typically, the next one is the local authority. The way it works at the moment is government public services are going to turn to credit agencies to prove people's address. But the credit agency gets it from the electoral roll, which is maybe updated nine months after the local authority knows. The way we do it at the moment is completely screwed up. Sorry. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I think the um, if you're talking about social security or the group of people who are most reliant on either permanently or intermittently for welfare, both from national government or, or local local government, then then it's, it'd be really helpful to see examples that that would improve the lot of that group. If so, so I think one can sort of visualise, um, you know, middle market consumer, that, you know get rid of some of this hassle of, of having to take your council tax bill and your energy bill around to Blockbuster to, just to take out a video, whatever it, whatever it is. Because um, the, the reality is that some of those sort of state-driven systems actually fundamentally require to see a pretty good hard copy of that passport or, or some proof which is not, not a forgery. So all the debates we've had about Citizens Advice Bureau advisors um, seeing a document that would prove some, and, and actually some people have some hugely various elderly documents, you know, um, and may often not have passports because they've never needed to travel. So why would they pay £100 to get a passport if they never needed to go out the country um, uh, at any point in their lives? Um, and we've had debates about the liability for fraud. Um, if we have failed to identify that this was a forgery, and we have people in this country today who are entitled to Social Security who have documents from all parts of Europe. And they've had huge problems around delays with transactions in HMRC, entitlement to child benefit, going on for two years, verifying documentation or the identities of the children. So, so really this idea, this idea, I think it's less unease, more I would be thinking, where's the practical benefit for the people who rely on welfare, if we're talking about welfare, and concentrate on examples there. Uh, how will it help someone open a bank account, make a claim, uh, and maintain that claim? To ha and what is it that would need to go into it? And in the process, can we simplify the range of identification methods that people use, actually? Um, because there, are, there, there isn't a single list. <laughs> there are different things used for different purposes. So, so if you can exercise yeah. some influence on po the public policy... To simplify the requirements, then that might be, okay. you know, and then there's how it's distributed. It's quite a big ask to ask a social enterprise, which is barely constituted, to go around influencing public policy. I mean, you've got, hu you've got a huge voice in public policy. We're trying to get our platform going, and our contention is that when the platform exists, a lot of things can be reconsidered. I think you're rightly very focused on, effectively, the 15% that Martha Lane Fox would is now trying to drive online. The people who have to surrender their data, most often, who have the highest load of intervention with public services. I would contend that these are the people who are the most exploited in terms of... Well, the, the bottom 15% it effectively the most exploited in terms of having to provide the most public data. They're the most at risk. They perhaps have the lowest level of understanding of the risks that they face by providing the public data. Um, so I think if they're able to use effectively a self-completing form, 
and also to acquire and deploy trust, because in many cases they're the least trusted and asked most often to provide evidence yeah. of trust. Yeah. I think generically this would be helpful. That's, that's with the caveat that I'm not an expert in social security and, and, uh, and you know, the, um, the day-to-day needs faced there. to ask you, William, whether, um, whether you knew what you were taking on, because there are enormous numbers of people, you know, right across the public services who, who are just wasting a lot of time basically doing uh, very basic I do solemnly swear that I, yes. I say, yeah. uh, provide a couple of bits of information, including utility bills and things like that, which is really quite basic. Mm. And then you have to wait, and then you get the same kind of copy of a giant embossed document. Yes. And then you have to send this off to loads of other people. And, you know, by the end of it, it's about 20 or 30 people have made a living yeah. out, of, out of your inconvenience. But and, and I just don't think really got a grip on how much Yeah, the issue is that system, though, isn't it? it exactly. Yeah, you know, so programming well, does require you to present yourself in person. But um, why do I have to present yeah. in person? I mean, well, the person because, I present to Because is, it's from the 1760s, whenever the legislation... Yeah. <laughs> do you want to respond to Patrick? <laughs> yeah, the person I present to doesn't know me yeah. from Adam. I could so just Skype to, in and say, so, I am that person. Yeah. And then yeah. there would be a video yeah. record of who I was. So you need, so to, all so you, so you need to do more to the system than have a plastic card saying who you are. Let's get one more question, and then we'll ask each of the speakers just to make a last point before we finish. Uh, Jim Dorton at Design It. Um, it's, I think, first of all, I think it was in your presentation, you, you had your uh, recommendation for designers for yeah. designing online solutions, and you, you talked about design for all. Yes. Uh, and really, the question is one of clarification about what we mean uh, in design for all, because uh, I think it could be a semantic thing, but uh, uh, another expression of that is, is inclusive design or universal yes. design. I yes. prefer inclusive. So just yeah. clarification that inclusive yeah. design is trying to include as many people as possible, but it's, it's in my experience, impossible to actually literally design for all. Okay, that's great. If we can ask the speakers just to make some final um, comments each, either answering the question or something that's come out. Should we go in this order? Do you want to talk yeah. to you first, Tracy? Well, yes, I agree. And so let's not just look at what's online, but what's around, what's around it in order to make, make that happen. So if you've designed inclusively and for all, there will be certain people for whom it's not them but somebody else using it for them. So they're factored into the design. It's not about just shunting, but whole, whole system. I think I have to respond to Patrick's characteristically provocative intervention. Uh, I'm fully aware of the absolutely vast swathes of darkness in inertia and vested interests in a totally organisation-centric way of doing things. And the more I work on this, the more I'm equally convinced that there's an ocean of light in terms of the ease, the simplicity, the better data logistics, the restoration of control to individuals, the human rights, the justice, 
the cost-effectiveness and the new opportunities that will happen when we regain control of our personal data and act as trusted entities in Web 2.0. We're not trying to simplify ID. We're trying to make it more complicated. The reason is, at the moment, it's like Pac-Man. You know, there's four levels. The government thinks there's only four categories of trust you can fall into. And it ought to be like HDTV. It ought to be absolutely fit for purpose in every particular circumstances. And we think that's the world we're going to bring about. Very happy to say we're collaborating with the Design Council. We met at lunchtime so we could now announce this. Formally collaborating with the Design Council. Uh, the first step in this, building on the work Pat's done here, is to assess the full design challenge involved in bringing about a personal data ecosystem generically broken down into the different areas it goes. So we hope to do that before the end of July. See some of you here for that. Um, a couple of things. I um, have discussed identity with you before, William, haven't I? Uh, in a previous existence, I used to work for the Evil Empire or the Home Office, as it used to be known. Um, and so we have... We have yeah. uh, we've always been terribly cordial about it, though. I think my scepticism about William's proposals are no longer based on the, any spurious support for ID cards, you'll be pleased to, to hear, uh, William. But um, uh, it's mo more about motivation and ability. I think for your initial target group, who are probably the online middle classes, it, there's, a, there's a motivation question for me. Are enough people going to be motivated to, to take the effort to manage their own identity and, and processes in the way that you've talked about? And then the ability element of it for, for the client group that we deal with, um, I would love you, you and your guys to come and work in one of our centres for a few days. Seriously, uh, it's a serious offer. Uh, and see how much and how helpful your proposals would be for our, and how usable your proposals would be for our client group. Um, and let's see if we can make it really work. You're very helpful. Um, my final thought for the day, I guess, is I keep coming back to the fact that if, if none of us have got any money, it does force us to work together rather better. Um, and uh, uh, in that spirit, if anybody wants to work with us, then please do get in touch. Okay, well, we're now uh, time for another Thank cup you. of tea, but um, if I can just ask you to help me thank this.